children age four through third grade can go to children's chapel. If you have a Bible with you, you can open to the book of Amos, chapter four. We'll look at verses six through 13 this morning. Uh, Amos 4. Let's, uh, let's pray, and then we'll read the Scripture. Lord, we come to you, um, and we humble ourselves before your Word. And if we don't, we pray that you would humble us before your Word by your Spirit. We pray that you would help us to understand your Word and to receive your grace at this time, uh, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amos 4, starting in verse 6. God says, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city. And send no rain on another city. One field would have rain, and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew. Your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses. I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, uh, probably most of you are familiar with Charles Spurgeon. He was a a Baptist preacher in London in the 1800s. His life was pretty incredible. Um, There's a biography by Arnold Dollimore, which is really excellent, a little paperback biography. Um, Really amazing, but his life was also full of suffering. Uh, His wife was chronically ill, so that uh, often she couldn't leave the home. Um, He had serious opponents and detractors inside of his denomination, which made him uh, eventually... Uh, leave his denomination. Actually, they voted him out. Um, He frequently suffered from depression, sometimes being so overwhelmed he couldn't explain it. You just weep for hours, uh, so emotionally overwhelmed. He had serious health problems. He struggled with rheumatism, like arthritis, uh, gout, which is very painful, and some kidney problems, which uh, eventually killed him at, uh, at age 57, fairly young. Some might say that these hardships were proof that God was angry with Charles Spurgeon. 
that God was punishing him for his sin, or that God didn't really care what happened to Charles, or that God cared but was powerless to do anything about it, or that it was proof that there really is no God. God doesn't even exist at all. But Spurgeon knew that his hardships came from his sovereign, wise, loving father. That they were actually carefully designed for his good to bring about his utter dependence on God for grace and for strength, to give him a deeper longing for God's presence and to make him fit for heaven, to change Charles Spurgeon more and more into the likeness of Jesus and grow him in holiness. He saw from the scriptures, and he believed that these sufferings came to him as a father's loving discipline, and not as God's judgment or God's absence or lack of care. In fact, during the hard times that that he suffered, that view of his sufferings seemed to be the only thing that kept him going. He said this, it would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me, that the bitter cup was never filled by his hand, that my trials were never measured out by him, nor sent to me by his arrangement of their weight and quantity. Our passage this morning supports this belief that the trials that befall us as the people of God are designed by God as discipline, not as judgment, not as condemnation, not as punishment, as discipline. You know there's a difference there, right? Uh, The distinction between discipline and punishment is critical uh, for how we understand God's work in our lives through our suffering. It's critical, actually, practically, uh, for how we understand church discipline, right? Um, When I say church discipline, your first thought probably runs to self-righteous hypocrites proclaiming judgment on poor souls in some kind of power play, right? Um, Unfortunately, historically, those thoughts are... uh, justifiable, and we need to repent and be on guard against that. But church discipline, rightfully understood and properly exercised, isn't about punishment or retribution or condemnation. Um, I'm going to read a little bit from our book of church order, chapter 27, which is the introduction to the section on church discipline. So bear with me while I geek out for a while here, um, doing the Presbyterian thing. Um, But I think you'll find this really interesting. Discipline is the exercise of authority given to the church by the Lord Jesus Christ to instruct and guide its members and to promote its purity and welfare. It says, in its proper usage, discipline maintains three things, the the glory of God, the purity of his church, and the keeping and reclaiming of disobedient sinners. Nowhere in there is discipline meant for punishment of people who have done wrong. The power which Christ has given the church is for building up and not for destruction. It is to be exercised as under a dispensation of mercy and not of wrath. It acts the part of a tender mother, correcting her children for their good, that every one of them may be presented faultless in the day of the Lord Jesus. Can you believe this kind of language is in our BCO, (laughs) Book of Church Order? The part of a tender mother, correcting her children for their good. And then this is the last bit I'll read from it. Proper disciplinary principles are instruction in the word. So I bet you didn't know you were being disciplined right now. Um, Instruction in the word, being taught God's word. Whenever 
uh, you hear something that God says that you don't like, that you don't already conform to in some way, that's discipline. Individuals' responsibility to admonish one another. And here there's a reference to Matthew 18, right, where Jesus says, uh, if you've got a conflict and if your brother has sinned against you, uh, go and tell him his sin, right? That's your responsibility as a brother in Christ, as a sister in Christ. If the admonition is rejected, then the calling of one or more witnesses, also in accordance with Matthew 18. And if rejection persists, that person is stubborn in their disobedience, to God's word, then the church must act, act through her court unto admonition, suspension, excommunication, and deposition. So admonition is, um, is telling them something, you've done this wrong, and you need to make it right. You need to repent and put your trust in Christ and start obeying him. Uh, that's admonition. Uh, suspension is um, at, at another level where we would actually... Um, suspend people from partaking of the Lord's Supper to make them aware that uh, what they're doing really is a grievous sin and it strikes uh, not only at our body, at our fellowship, but at Christ himself, right? Uh, It's a disobedience, a willful sin against uh, him. Excommunication is is where you remove someone from your fellowship and then deposition is where if that person has been ordained, then uh, you're demitting them from the office. Right? You're taking away their ordination. In general, discipline is not a pleasant experience. Right? And some of these steps in church discipline can be quite painful. But the goal is not to simply inflict pain for its own sake. Even at the extreme final point of excommunication, putting someone outside of the church and treating them as if they weren't a Christian, even at that extreme final point when a disobedient person persists in rejecting God's word and is cast out of the church, the purpose is still to win him or her back right? to repentance and faith. It's pretty basic. Repentance and faith. Right? Uh, Paul writes in, in his letter to the Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, dealing with the issue of someone who's been sexually immoral in the church. He says, When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, or with the authority of our Lord Jesus. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Repentance and faith is always the goal at every stage of discipline. Excommunication is not a pleasant experience for anyone, and we often mistake it for condemnation, for judgment, right? Uh, But in the Bible, it is graciously intended by God to be a corrective discipline, a renewing discipline. Some authority for church discipline is granted to to humans, right, by God, Um, which is a scary prospect, so you should pray for your elders and pray for those who are potentially going to be elders, that they'd be able to engage in discipline with wisdom and with grace. Uh, But God doesn't share all of his authority with us. Being sovereign over every part of his world brings all sorts of unpleasant experiences into our lives uh, for the purpose of discipline. He means for our present sufferings to prod us to return to him, to stay close to him, and cling to him in greater dependence, to give our lives to him, to fight against sin in our lives, and to live for his glory, 
That's the purpose of our sufferings under God's hand. Charles Spurgeon again says, I dare say the greatest earthly blessing that God can give to any of us is health, with the exception of sickness. If some men that I know of could only be favored with a month of rheumatism, it would, by God's grace, mellow them marvelously. Uh, Now, at first glance, uh, it might not seem like that's what's going on in our text. Amos is a pretty hard book. Um, This passage, it it might seem like this passage is just another example of God's angry judgment coming on his people. And there is judgment in our text, but it's not until the end. It's not until the very end. The bulk of this passage focuses on um, the sufferings of God's people as intended by God as discipline, in order that they might avoid judgment, avoid his coming wrath. Uh, Verse 6, God says, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Cleanness of teeth is not a good thing in the ancient world. Um, It's not like getting on a really good dental plan. Uh, Your teeth are clean when you don't get any food to make them dirty, right? Um, God is saying that he made his people starve, yet they didn't return to him. The unspoken implicit assumption here um, is the fact that he made them starve so that they would return to him. He made them starve so that they would return to him. They sinned, they turned their backs on God, they despised him, and instead of immediate judgment, they received discipline intended by God to renew them to repentance and faith. Verses 7 and 8, God withheld rain and drinking water from them so that they would return to him, so that they would cry out to him for mercy and help, but they didn't. Verse 9, God brought economic ruin upon them in the form of blight, mildew, and locusts, uh, ruining their crops, so that they would return to him, so that they would put their trust in him for their sustenance and for their wealth, but they didn't. Verse 10, God sent disease and war that brought death even to the fittest of them, the young men, their sons, so that they would return to him so that they'd be thankful for the health and the peace that they enjoyed, but they didn't. Verse 11, God destroyed some of their cities like he had Sodom and Gomorrah, sparing a few of them so that they might return to him, so that they would live in obedience before him, but they didn't. God brought all sorts of suffering into the lives of his people. He claims responsibility for their sufferings so that they would turn from their sins, trust in him, delight in him, be thankful to him and obey him. He sent devastation into their world for their good to discipline and correct them as a loving father. And he does this in each of our lives. Poverty, hunger and thirst, financial ruin, loss of a job, sickness, um, loss of loved ones, loss of security, loss of control, even utter turmoil and panic-inducing events in our lives, right? All are afflictions sent by God. All are bitter cups filled by his own hand. All trials measured out by him in their weight and in their quantity with the ultimate goal of reuniting you with himself in every way 
And it seems strange to us that um, such terrible things, terrible things in our lives would be consider, uh, considered loving discipline. Why should it seem strange? In our New Testament reading, <clears throat> the author to the, the Hebrews, the Jewish Christians, was encouraging them to endure persecution as Christians. And he quotes from Proverbs 3, says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure, that you have to endure persecution, people killing you for being a Christian. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So my children uh, think that there's nothing worse in life than when I discipline them. Literally, I think so far they have not experienced anything worse in their lives than when I discipline them. It feels to them as if I had abandoned my love for them, doesn't it? As if everything in me had turned against them. That's how it feels to them. At their level of understanding, the discipline is of cosmic proportions. But the great tragedy that they feel comes into their lives precisely because I love them and because I want the best for them. Right? And I do this miserably. I love them more than anything, but I'm a sinner. Right? Often I do discipline them out of anger, which is a grievous sin. Often I don't even know what's best for them, really. But your Heavenly Father is perfect, and He always knows what is best for you. And if he brings hardship into your lives, it is always for love. He loves you as a son, as a daughter in Jesus Christ. He's refining your life because he loves you. He's fitting you for heaven because he wants you to be there with him. And at your level of comprehension, God's discipline might seem to be of cosmic proportions, absolutely world-shattering. It's a matter of perspective. God says in the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 55, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than yours and my thoughts than your thoughts. But what he has clearly revealed to us in Scripture, in his dealings with the human race for thousands of years, is that he is working all things together for good for those who love God, for those who are called by him. It's Romans chapter 8. Right. The child one day grows to understand why her parents grounded her and constantly made her life miserable, took away all of her 
technological privileges, right? And she's grateful to her parents, and she loves them for it. In the same way, we also one day will see clearly how God was at work in our lives for good, to fit us for heaven, even if he was constantly making life miserable for us. The Bible says that um, fitting us for heaven is a violent process because our hearts have to be torn away from the things that we love that keep us from God. But our Heavenly Father loves us as sons and daughters, and he desires us to return to him, so he is willing to discipline us to that end. And here's how you can know for sure that your sufferings are, in fact, discipline from a loving God for your good and not rejection or condemnation from him. It's because Jesus died for you on the cross. He suffered abandonment and rejection by God, his Father, so that you would never have to. He cried out in the middle of his suffering, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that was true because God had forsaken him. Jesus bore all of God's wrath, all of the condemnation, all of the punishment for your sins and died in separation from his heavenly Father to forgive your sins and to make you a child of God. God is no longer angry with you, and he never will be. He looks on you with a heart full of love, and he sees all the perfection of his son, Jesus Christ, his dear son, his beloved son, and he smiles and delights over you, and that is it. If you're in Jesus Christ by faith, then your sufferings will never be a punishment for your sins by God. Because of who God is, because of what he promises to you, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, your suffering cannot be because God has abandoned you or hates you. He has given his beloved son for your salvation. He's not going to be mean to you now, right? Even if it means, uh, even if, if your life looks like affliction after hardship, after turmoil, right? But if you never respond to his loving discipline, then ultimately he will come to you in judgment, just like he did to Israel. He repeatedly demonstrated patient love for their discipline over and over again, yet they refused to return to him. So in verse 12 it says, Therefore thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God. Who is your God? He's the God of armies. He's the God of hosts. If you scorn his love and his discipline forever, you do incite him to wrath. And his wrath is hell. And maybe that seems a bit excessive to you. But let me put it to you this way. If you're the one resisting relationship with him now, why would you want anything but ultimate separation from him? Which is what the Bible describes as death and hell. Uh, Dallas Willard says this, in a book called Renovation of the Heart. Hell is not an oops or a slip. One does not miss heaven by a hair, but by constant effort to avoid and escape God. Outer darkness is for one who everything said wants it, 
whose entire orientation has slowly and firmly set itself against God. Away from God is the only place for which they are suited. It's a place they would, in the end, choose for themselves rather than come to humble themselves before God and accept who he is. If you don't turn away from your sins and turn to God, if your life isn't on a trajectory toward loving him more deeply and walking before him in holy obedience more and more, then you're moving away from him. And that direction is hell. So prepare to meet God. That's why he brings afflictions and hardships into your life to prepare you to meet him. No matter how much it might um, feel like it to you, your hardships are not the end of the world. Not yet. While you have breath in your lungs and thoughts in your minds, you can still prepare to meet God and have that be an exceedingly pleasant experience. You can do that only as you put your your trust, your faith in his son, Jesus Christ. If you haven't done that, then you need to do that right now. Um, We all meet with God. We prepare our hearts to meet with him every week, uh, especially when we come to this table, right? We give thanks to him for his mercy to us in the sacrifice of his son. We reaffirm our trust in him for salvation. We, uh, We look to our relationship with him for our joy and to strengthen us, and we look forward to the day when we'll meet him face to face, when our fellowship will be made perfect forever. And sometimes in um, our preparation for communion, I call your attention to the prayers that are printed um, in the back of the bulletin on the inside back cover. And so I'm going to close now in prayer using the prayer of belief that's printed there. And I uh, sincerely hope that it's reflective of all of your hearts. If you're praying this for the first time uh, with faith, then, um, then come and talk to me after the service. Amen. Let's prepare to meet our God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I admit that I am weaker and more sinful than I ever before believed. But through you, I'm more loved and accepted than I ever dared hope. I thank you for paying my debt, bearing my punishment on the cross, and offering forgiveness and new life. Knowing that you have been raised from the dead, I turn from my sins and receive you as Savior and Lord. Amen.